You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, we're grateful that you've brought us together on this Lord's Day. And Father, thank you for the good word that we heard this morning um, from Cameron and the reminder that you are pursuing us and that you love us. And, And Lord, I thank you for bringing us together here in this class. I pray that you'll help teacher and those who are here to listen, that by the power of your Spirit, you would open our minds and our hearts, Lord, to understand and perceive um, who you are. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, are there, Drew, are there chairs in that, hiding in that closet? Oh, you can sit on the stage chair if you want to. Um, Okay, well, welcome to everyone. We're in Oh, there you go. We're, we're in week uh, two of our seven-week uh, class on the names of God. Now, for those of you who weren't here last week, I give you just a kind of three-minute um, update on on what what we're about in this class. And last week, we talked a bit about the significance of God giving Himself to His people by His name. That the very fact that God names Himself and gives Himself to His people by a name reveals something about the character of God as one who gives of Himself in relation to His people. Um, so that's a, that's a significant factor when it comes, and we're going to talk more about this today, um, but there's nothing internal uh, to the being of God that would require Him to, number one, create the world. And we're going to talk about this today especially. So there's nothing about God's being internally that necessitates that the world is. It doesn't have to be here. Um, and there's nothing uh, that necessitates within the being of God um, that He redeem humanity. He doesn't need these things outside of Himself to constitute Himself. Um, so the fact that the world is, and the fact that God is redeeming the world by His Son, uh, moving us toward a final purpose in a new heavens and a new earth, attests to the character of our God as one who within his own self-decision, within his own internal conversation eternally with himself, has determined to be a God for us. And, And that language, by the way, of for us or on our account or with us, that language throughout the New Testament is shorthand for the gospel. God gives Himself to us. He was for us. He handed over the Son on our account, Romans 8.28. So the fact that God names Himself, and the fact that God allows us to come into relation with Him by identifying Him, is a significant attestation to the character of our God as one who loves and redeems. There's a lot of overlap, frankly, substantially, with what this class is about and the sermon that we just heard from Cameron. Um, because we're a beautiful sermon, uh, about the, the, the nature of God as one who is pursuing us, um, and He's pursuing us because um, He has set His, his affections on us. Um, and so that's significant to this notion of God giving Himself um, in His name. Today, um, I'd like to specifically speak about one name. I'm going to write it up on the board somewhere so that I don't make the music teacher mad. Um, I'm, I'll, I'll do, here's, okay, I'm doing this just, that's the Hebrew word there going this way, um, 
had to remind my, I tell my Hebrew students, I said, you know that you've earned your Hebrew chops when you open your English Bible and you start reading the wrong way. That's a good <laughs> sign. Um, and then the, the English, of course, is Elohim. That's an H. Okay, Elohim. Um, this is the term that we'll discuss today. Um, Elohim. Uh, God. Uh, this is what you have translated for the most part in our Bibles as capital G-O-D. Um, if you read any sort of Jewish literature, you will see um, quite often they will write this out of respect as G-D. Um, again, that's a respect for the significance of the divine being. And um, this term also, though, and this is something we'll have to talk a little bit about today, this term also can refer to the lowercase g-o-d-s uh, gods as well. Um, the same term, Elohim. Now, what? And I'm not going to let this get, turn into a linguistic lesson. But one, one thing worth no noticing here, um, well, I don't know where to write this, but um, you, you can't even see that. There, there's a, th this ter this uh, form here is a plural just for you know, just let you know, that's a that's a plural term. That's why often you'll hear, for example, when they say "Let us make man in our image," and you have that plural language. That plural is being, in some sense, um, elo uh, uh, drawn from the fact that God, the term God, is a plural form. There is a singular form um, that is uh, just this right here, the L. Um, so, for example, I think it's Psalm sixty-three, verse one says. Um, o God, you are my God. And it's O Elohim, the big plural name there, you are Eli, my God, the smaller term of God um, that's a singular term. So O God, you are my God. So you have a diminutive form, a singular form, El, but the form that we see most often in the Bible is this plural form. Now, lots of questions can, can be raised with this, namely... What's the significance of the plural? Now, I would love to run with this because I should just go ahead and lay, lay our, you know, our cards right on the table very clearly here. We understand Elohim uh, to be the one we name as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? Now, this is going to emphasize the singularity of the divine being. And, of course, we all know that Trinitarian logic gets very complicated, and it's the logic of faith. But on a very simple level, what Trinitarian logic is, is as follows. We believe that God and His substance is one. There's multiple gods out there. And yet in that oneness, He reveals Himself in three persons of co-equal status in that shared substantial unity. One and three. That's the simple logic of the Trinity. But the point is, here when we have Elohim, this is emphasizing the singularity of God's being, His oneness, and yet it's a plural, right? It's a, it's a plural name. And so I would love to run with that and say, see, sort of buried within the logic of the language of Hebrew itself, you have a plural uh, revelation of God's being and therefore Trinity, right? Um, no, I, I don't think that's necessarily what's going on here. I, I'm happy to kind of think about that in other ways. But the plural here is simply probably what, what they refer to as a plural of majesty, 
or a plural of quality. Uh, sometimes when you're talking about things in the Hebrew language that are majestic or large in scope, vast, uh, sort of beyond human comprehension, the language will move from a singular to a, plur- to a plural to express that sort of grandiose character of the thing that's being described. All right, so that's sort of buried here, I think, within the language itself. Um, if you have Bibles, you'll, you'll be interested in this. Look at Psalm 86, verse 8. In Psalm 86, verse 8, challenging verse. And, we'll, and, and if you want to ask questions about this in the Q&A, which we won't have, feel free to. <laughs> um, uh, but Psalm, Psalm 86, verse 8 says, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord. There are n- nor are there any works like yours. There is none like you among the gods. That's... Elohim, but translated lowercase g-o-d-s. And then it goes to that special name of the Lord revealed in His giving to His people, the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, Jehovah. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord. Um, When we go to Job chapter 1, if you remember, um, and this is one of those texts that frankly is a bit of a challenge, but when you go to Job chapter 1, Um, You get the first few verses introducing to us to Job, the man. And then the next scene that we have is, and now it came about the time when the sons of God came to present themselves to the Lord. Uh, The sons of the Elohim who come to present themselves to the Lord. This is what, and you might read this when you're reading a commentary or some secondary literature out there. This is what's referred to as the divine counsel. Um, so here you have the Lord, our God, in a divine council where there are, where the other beings that we might identify as divine have to present themselves to God because they are under His, under the auspice of His authority as well. Um, so all to say, th- this is a bit of a challenge for us as we kind of come to terms with what it means to be monotheists. What does it mean for us to believe that there's only one God? Um, or the singularity of Israel's God as, as, as the one and only God. And I think we have to kind of come to some terms with recognizing that the way in which the Old Testament presents reality, that there are these sort of semi-divine, um, lowercase g, gods, figures that, that are in the immaterial world, and yet are bound by the material world in such a way that they recognize that they have no omnipotence or omniscience over reality itself. Um, and just so you don't think this is just an Old Testament phenomenon, this is, this is a New Testament one as well, right? Paul talks about the principalities, the powers, the dark forces of the air. Um, we, we might use terms like demons and angels, that, those kind of terms. These, these figures, the Bible's working with a cosmic worldview that understands that reality and the conflicts of reality go beyond what we're seeing in our world before us. And I, I actually think, by the way, that this, and, and, I, and I put myself right in this category, that this, is, this reveals for us how modern we really are. E- even Christians who believe crazy stuff like the Trinity, uh, and who believe that God came into, into time in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. Um, I mean, we, we believe some 
I mean, you think about that in comparison to, to Cameron's articulation of an atheistic materialist worldview. We're not really working with that here because we believe the content of the Christian faith. But none of us are walking around. I mean, maybe some of you do, but most of us, I think, aren't walking around worried about demons or, or, or the God who's unleashed um, in Iraq. Like in the Old Testament, that would have been Nimrod, right? We're not thinking in those terms. We're very modern, I think, in our understanding of the world, even though we have a supernatural worldview. Years ago, Heiko Obermann, who's now dead and gone, but a leading Reformation scholar, fascinating man, great lecturer too. If you ever get a chance to listen to him online, do it. He came and presented a lecture um, entitled, I think it was entitled, Luther and the Chicken Bone. Um, and this guy taught at Harvard, I mean, serious scholar. Um, and, and what his point was, was that Luther was as robust a classic Christian theologian as you would find, committed to the authority of Scripture in all things. And yet there was still a kind of idea that was present within the late medieval world that Luther inhabited that a chicken bone underneath your pillow could stave off the demons at night. And guess who slept with a chicken bone under his pillow? Right. None of you are sleeping with chicken bones under your pillows, right? I can remember working at a camp in the summers years ago, camp where I actually met my wife, um, and up in the mountains of Brevard, North Carolina. Um, and I can remember distinctly um, when it was late at night and all the kids were asleep and you were walking back to your cabin, I can remember the sort of eerie feeling of being in the dark and being alone. In Luther's world and in the medieval world, that experience was an experience where you just might have a live encounter with the devil or a demon or some sort of semi-divine being that's, again, not omnipotent, not the God who creates the world, but a God who is involved in some ways in the and the way in which the world goes about and the conflicts within it. I mean, Luther was under the impression that you might just have a live encounter with the devil himself. Um, so that's, that's, a straight, that's a stretch, I think, for the way in which we engage the world. But I think in Psalm 86, 8 and Job 1, and there's so many other places that you have in the Old Testament where there is this understanding. Um, when Elijah has his showdown, and, uh, and we didn't get to get to this in the king's class, but when Elijah has his showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, which is, to my mind, one of the best scenes in the Bible. I mean, if you're, again, I've mentioned this before, but if we have that Friday night movie night in heaven, I mean, I'm going to that one too, because that's going to be awesome, right? Um, and I had the opportunity just in January to stand on Mount Carmel for, for the first time in my life, um, and it is a high mountain. I mean, it's, it's a dramatic place to be. And here is Elijah having his showdown with the prophets of Baal, and he's leaning in, into their own worldview to kind of poke fun at, at them. Um, maybe he's sleeping, yell louder, um, which I always thought to be a kind of a sarcastic kick in the knee. And, and it's, it's, it is that, but it's not merely that. They believe that Baal was actually killed um, in a battle with Ale, the other god from the northwestern part of the, the, the Canaanite religion myths. They believe that Baal had been killed in a battle with, with, uh, with Ale and would, would come back to life again. 
And when he came back to life again, he brought with him the rain and, and the weather that was needed for the crops and the agriculture. So, so this recycling of Baal dying and coming back again was the rhythm of going into the off-season, into the harvest season that they depended on their sustenance for. So when, when Elijah's going after them, he's leaning into that dynamic. Recognizing, by the way, recognizing that what was going on on Mount Carmel was a showdown between Jehovah and Baal. In other words, it wasn't just that we're going to show him them how vapid and stupid they are. No, this was a bona fide cosmic showdown between the Lord, the God of Israel, and the God that they are worshiping, Baal, who was completely enwrapped within the material world and constrained by it in ways that Israel's God is not and never will be. And you know, of course, how the story goes on, right? It's so fun. They pour water and then boom, the fire comes down and licks everything up. Fire leaves, altar gone, everything's consumed. Mass repentance. And I thought, like, you want, you want mass repentance and conversion? Like, that's a great, re- I don't know how you pull that off, but that is a great recipe. Okay. So back to this term Elohim. Elohim is a term that is designated for the gods in general. But when it's predicated or used to describe for us Israel's God, its prominent use is in context dealing with God as creator or with creation in general. And the term is also used most often in the Old Testament when Israel's God is coming into some interaction with the nations of the world apart from his covenant with Israel. So let me say this one more time because I think this is kind of a salient feature of of what I'm trying to get across with Elohim. Elohim is a term that's used prominently in context dealing with God as creator. Number two, Elohim is used when the nations of the world are in view apart from God's covenant with Israel. And so I don't bury the lead. The larger issue here is for us to recognize that the God of Israel that's particular to an elected relationship with these people, is also the God who's the creator of the whole world. He's no mere parochial divinity. Um, He's a God who creates the world um, and is in relation as well to the nations at large. Um, And and if you've you've spent a lot of time in the Old Testament and you see it um, as you move through, especially as you get into the prophets, that God is concerned about the nations as well, not, not merely his, his, his elected people. Okay, Now, I want to look at a few texts with you this morning to, to unpack that, um, conscious of our time. The first one I would like to look at, and I, you, you don't even need to turn, but just so that you, you will sort of refer to it, is Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 4, what we call uh, the first creation account. Now, you know there, there are two creation accounts. You have the first one there in Genesis 1, and then you move into Genesis 2, and there's another creation account, not to be viewed as repugnant or in, or in competition one with the other, but with different viewpoints of the same creative activity of God. The first creation account gives us a kind of macro view of God's creation of the world, and the second creation account brings us into what happens in this massive creation of the world as God gives himself to humanity in relationship to humanity and eventually the whole history of redemption. Right, so we have God sort of in a macro view, what one theologian called the external basis of the covenant. The world becomes the, the means and the place, the created world, the theater of God's redeeming activity. 
And then when you get into the second creation account, the drama begins, right? So the theater is created, which tells us that creation has its own integrity. Um, and it's important that creation has its own integrity. And in fact, I think this helps us think about what our ultimate views and, and understanding of salvation is all about. Um, I believe, by the way, I mean, I'm full-blooded Protestant on this, that God in His redeeming of us is saving us from the tyranny of our own sin, right? I believe that. We need forgiveness, sin and the need of redemption and forgiveness. That is integral to the heart of the gospel. But that, but that message itself is moving toward even something bigger. And that is God is restoring this world that He's made, this creation of His that's fallen now because of sin, and is restoring it to what it was meant to be in its initial form back in Genesis chapter 1. And that's why when you think about the bookends of the Bible from the beginning and all the way to the end in Revelation, what are the bookends? The bookends are creation, fallen creation, and then new creation. It's making everything new. So that our being redeemed from the tyranny of sin is not merely a privatized matter. It is that, but it's not merely a privatized matter. God is drawing together a people for himself that he can be in their midst and in relationship with them so that humanity could be what humanity was intended to be truly and fully. So, by the way, I don't know, I don't know where you are on all of this, but, but if your sense of heaven is, is a sense of, of, of escape from the tyranny of the material world, right? Um, which is very kind of platonic, and it's also, I think, kind of Buddhist in a way. In other words, what's the goal of human existence? Well, a kind of soulish existence that's not in any way bound by the problems of having a body. Right? We want to get away from that. I mean, and you think, I can't wait to get away from this body so that I could just be, it should be me and Jesus. And the, the, the scriptures don't understand um, bodiless souls. That, that's the exception to the rule. That, that's the exception that says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but that's never the end. That's in anticipation of the resurrection of the body again. So we're thinking about a very material thing. All, all of this to say, God loves His world. Uh, it's why I get a little giddy every time I hear the hymn, This is my Father's world. Um, he loves his created world, sent his son into this world to become a, become a part of human creation by taking on flesh, knowing the limitations of that creation as well. And even now in the church, we go and we put like bread and wine in our mouths to participate in heavenly realities. God does not pit spiritual over against physical, but sees the whole goal of, of, of redemption as the fusing of those together necessarily for all of eternity. And I actually think that's really exciting because we'll still be you know, fishing and watching baseball and stuff. <laughs> now, back to Genesis chapter 1. What's significant about the description of Elohim? And that is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Bereshit, bara, Elohim. In the beginning, God created. And what did He create? He created the heavens and He created the earth. And how did He do so? Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. He did so, and this is, this is the shocker when you place the book of Genesis within the milieu of the other uh, creation myths that come out of the ancient Near Eastern world. 
This is where, you, you remember that, uh, some of you will remember this from growing up, um, if you're my age, on PBS. Um, was it uh, one of those shows where they said three of these things belong together? Right? Three of these things, da, 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 da. one of them is not like the other, right? I mean, if you were to sort of put the creation myths out there, Enuma Elish, Atrahasis, you know, some of these others that are there, and then put Genesis 1 next to it, it'd be very easy to say, that one's really weird compared to all those other ones. Because what you have within, and again, this is why the understanding of the lowercase g-o-d-s, gods, is, a, is on a completely different order and portrayal than the Elohim, who is Jehovah, revealed to us in the Bible. Because how the world comes into being in most creation myths from the ancient world is the product of some cosmic divine battle. Um, any of you in here by chance uh, read um, uh, Madeline Miller's new book, Circe? Um, it's a it's a winner. I like it, um, and it's it's her sort of redescription of uh, the semi divine being Circe. If you remember, she's the one that took men and turned them into pigs, right? Uh, remember, Odysseus lands on the island, and the sirens are there, and so they're kind of drawn in by the beauty of these semi-divine beings. Odysseus doesn't want to leave. Um, in fact, Circe falls in love with Odysseus. And she she weeps and screams when he leaves, but her, she's known for being the goddess that turns men into pigs. Lo lovely uh, figure. Um, and what I love about Miller's portrayal of Circe is that she gives you this incredible... Um, kind of sort of background on what led to the moment that, of Circe's existence. And you think about this where it goes back to, and this Hesiod's Theogony, if you want to sort of get into the details of this, but if you go back, you have um, chronos, time, now that's the Greek word for time, gives birth to uranos, the heavens, um, who in time gives birth to a god that you'll f be familiar with, Zeus, right? Um, and then Zeus usurps the authority of his father, Uranus, thus creating this cosmic rift between the Titans and the Olympians. All right? And of course, Circe comes from the low, the, the, those that have lost the battle because the Olympians, Zeus is the primary god in all of the, his retinue. Um, and then you have uh, the Titans who still have their divine power, um, but they've been, they've been humbled or they've been put in their place. But what you see sort of getting into this book by Miller and whatever else you read on you know, Greek mythology is, I mean, honestly, go, go, hey, going to a sort of deity family reunion it's like going to, to, to a junior high prom. Um, I mean, the, the infighting and the jealousy and the pettiness. And I like this young man and you, li you like Achilles, but I like Priam. And, and the way in which they, it's, it's like they're, they're childish. They're, they're, they're insecure. Um, they always, they live in fear. In fact, one of the ancient Near Eastern uh, creation myths uh, the Enuma Elish describes the gods as living in constant fear of one another. In fact, um, in the Enuma Elish, which was the Bab ancient, ba the old Babylon, don't think Nebuchadnezzar, think older than that, the old Babylonian myth of how the world came to be, it's because Tiamat, and that's a, that's a word that means the deep. So when you hear, for example, that in Genesis 1-2, that God, um, that the Spirit hovered over the deep, 
I mean, that's this sort of Tiamat language here, the Tahom, the deep. So Tiamat's around, and, um, and she is the sort of the queen of the gods at this moment in time. And, and then, um, Marduk, who's the, now the god of the Babylonians, comes along and, um, gets into a cosmic battle with her. And, th- and, and you, you, this is a fantastic Valentine's narrative, right? Um, he gets into a cosmic battle with her, um, shoots her through with an arrow, blows into her lips until she expands like a balloon, and then once she explodes, he takes the leftovers there, and from that residue creates the heavens and the earth. That's right. Um, and then what's the response from the Babylonians? Oh, it's, it's kind of biblical language. Oh, there is no God like you, Marduk. No God like you, right? Um, so that's, that's the norm. It's in Greek mythology. It's in Roman mythology. It's in ancient Near Eastern Canaanite mythology, Babylonian, Egyptian. That, that's the norm. And then you come to Genesis 1. He's like, well, gosh, this is really boring compared to that. I mean, what does God do? He sends His Spirit by the effective agency of His Word, and all of a sudden the world starts to appear. No battle, no fear, no anxiety. You will never find a portrayal of Elohim in the Old Testament as one who is experiencing anxiety in that way, wondering if His power will be usurped. He sits on His throne, and He sits there with no rival. Right. So Genesis 1 presents a very different view of God. Um, I wanted to see you to see one more uh, of these here, kind of beautiful, where this appeal, this, this applies to Elohim in relation to the nations. And I just finished reading this chapter with students at Beeson this week, which is so fun. Um, Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1 is a great text to kind of think through all the dynamics that we're talking about here about Elohim, capital G God, Elohim, lower G gods, how these relate to one another. Because what happens in Jonah? We, you know the background story, so they're on the boat. Um, and this is really fun, because in the, in the, and this is why I tell students it's good for you to take these languages. The, the, the Hebrew text says something like this, and the boat thought it was going to be destroyed. I mean, that, whoever wrote Jonah did, it is really good, actually, because this is so, so much fun things going on. The boat thought, none of our translations say that, right? But the boat thought that it was going to be destroyed. So the boat's precise. I mean, everything's just going topsy-turvy. And what does the, the, the captain of the boat say? Calls on all the sailors and he says, every one of you cry out to your God, which is an understanding of a polytheistic world. It's an understanding that every nation had a particular chief God that they thought was the God that was on their side. And the question is, well, which God's going to answer us today? Which one? Remember the cosmic battles that are going on and the insecurities and the fear between the divine beings? Which one has the power today? Which one has the upper hand today? Because obviously not all of them do, but which one has the upper hand? So they're calling out to their gods. And then they come to Jonah and they say, Jonah, why don't you call out to your God as well, O sleeping one? Um, and then they decide to do something that's a great way to make decisions in any crisis. They, they cast dice, right? Um, they're like, so let's figure out what's going on. And the dice fell on, on Jonah. And so then they unload on Jonah and they say to him, who are you? And he says, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Elohim, the God who made the heavens and the earth. And then he goes on to say, he made the sea and he made the dry land. And this is again a kind of an aside, but the, the, the Hebrew word for sea is yam. There was a God understood as yam, the sea God. Think Neptune, think Poseidon, right? 
Um, and here you have Jonah making a claim that the God that I worship is the one that oversees all of that. And then none, none, all of those are in subservience to him and his creative power. He, he's the God who made it all. And do you know what their response was? I love this. Um, and here's, here's a literal translation. And they feared with a really great fear. <laughs> that means that they were really, really scared, right? Um, and that's the proper response as an aside that's the same response that Peter has to Jesus when he calms the storm. Because Peter gets what's going on. He realizes that this is, this is my Jonah moment. And I'm the pagan sailor. Recognizing that here is God, the one who created the world, and he's calming the seas. Only, only God has that kind of power over the yam, over the home, over the deep. And he, and he calms it. Um, and so you go back to the Jonah scene, and this is what's so beautiful, right? They recognize um, that Jonah's God is the God over the heavens and the earth, the supreme God above all, all, all other beings, divine or human, material or immaterial. And then what do they do the, the very next verse? And this is so beautiful. And they called out on no longer Elohim. They call out on Jehovah, the sailors, the pagan sailors. And they call out to him and they make vows to him. In other words, what you have here in that one chapter in Jonah 1 is the beauty of moving from what we talked about last week with general revelation and attestation to the fact that God is and he is powerful and he's created and ordered the world to his own glory. And the only response to that reality is to fear with a great fear. The saving aspect of God's revealing of himself, that special revelation, is when he gives himself to us in his name and in his person to redeem us. And you see that transition happening right there in Jonah 1, from calling out on their Eloheinu, on their gods, to now having the revealed name of God, the saving name of God given to them in the person of the one who created the whole world, the God of the Hebrews. Um, so, a few things just to sort of walk away on this, and, what's our, and our time's gone. So I'm going to just give you these very quickly. Number one, um, Yahweh, Jehovah, Tetragrammaton, who we're going to talk about next week, and Elohim differ in nuance and context, but not in substance. This is very important. We are talking about the same figure. Different ways of being described, but we're talking about the same figure. Number two, the revelation of the God of Israel, the God of the Bible as Elohim, reveals to us that God is free. He acts in his freedom. Let me define this for you. Nothing outside of his own being exerts some sort of will to power over God. He operates according to his own internal motivation. And that has to do, by the way, with the ways in which God is described in the Old Testament, with what He says, and with what He does. God is always operating in accord with His freedom. Another way of saying this, and I prefer the term freedom, but another way of saying this is God is sovereign. Um, he, he is in control. And then uh, related to that, we see that Israel's God is the Creator. And we see creation as an act of love. It's an act of love. Because God is free, the world does not have to be. There's nothing that demands for the world to be for God to come into some fuller experience of His godness. It's not needed. 
He is full, complete, and free. So here's the question of the ages, right? Heidegger even asked it in the last century. So why is there something and not nothing? The biblical answer to that is because God is love. Because God has given Himself in an act of love to create space for the creation of the world. Um, German theologian Jürgen Moltmann had a beautiful, and I'm not sure I, I completely get all this, but at least it's a beautiful image, that God had to, because of God being everything, had to create space for, for the world to be um, in the totality of, of, of existence. And then related to that, the last thing, God is self-giving. Because the world is, the fact that the world actually exists, and we live and we breathe and we move and have our being, attests to the fact that God is creator and is free, has given himself to humanity to be known, and in the knowledge of him is where humanity comes to be truly human. And that gets us back to what we said last week, right? What's all this about? Knowing God and knowing ourselves. And the fact that the world is the fact that you experience the world is an attestation to the fact that God loves and He gives Himself to being. Um, last night I was sitting on my porch uh, with the sun watching a, 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 base, a baseball game, and, um, and it was hot. You know, I don't know what happened last night, but like just, it just got hot. Like sun's down, still hot. And I, was, I remember telling William, I'm like, man, we need a breeze. Bring a breeze. And it was weird. One came. It was, I said, did you feel that, William? And this breeze kind of comes on and, and the sweat on our face cooled down. And, and I thought, oh boy, this for tomorrow. Elohim, he's the creator of God. All that we have and we experience in this world is from him. Or if I put it in terms of what you've already prayed this morning, we bless thee for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life. But above all, for the redemption of the world through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, thank you uh, for revealing to us, to us that you are God and free, which really elicits a response of fear. But we also know that you've revealed us to us yourself as Redeemer and Creator. And I pray that you'll let us see those things as necessarily related to one another because we do want to know who we are and we really want to know who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.